confidence overshadows everything we are and do. You are the head of your church, and therefore we do trust in you this morning. Minister to us by your spirit, because you are gracious, you are a good king. Minister to us through the written word, knowing that our God is truth and our God is love. And I pray that you would use me this morning as a vehicle for your words and truth. Keep me from error and foolishness. And I pray that you will keep us all with attentive ears that not only listen to the word of our God, but we do the word as well. Cause us to be doers of your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. We are turning our attention to Romans chapter 3 again this morning, and I do believe, as difficult a passage as this may be, it is so appropriate to end our service in taking communion, the bread and the cup, together. And if you happen to be watching online, a special welcome to you, and you would want to prepare yourself, if you are a believer in Christ, to join with us in taking communion, but you'll want to be prepared even now as we enter into our time of worship in the Word. It will end in our communion celebration together. I think most of us realize that this nation, America, a nation we love, and in a month we're going to celebrate the birth of, it is a nation in moral confusion. Our morality, our immorality are colliding, colliding at an amazing rate, and it is very destructive. And like many of you, I am not sure that this nation is going to survive. I hope it will. But in the larger scope of things, as we look at Scripture, this world isn't going to survive. It will come under the judgment of God. And in the end, he's going to burn this world with fire. Global warming is coming. But the reality is we're seeing in this nation, a nation that was once founded at least on the influence of the gospel, the influence of Christianity, that is all being set aside in a very dramatic and hostile way, I might say. I'm not one that ever believed that America was a Christian nation, but most certainly we are a Christian-influenced nation. I believe that the only nation that can bear the title Christian would be the church. But we are a nation that has come under at least the morality and the ethics of Scripture, and we're seeing those things collide on a weekly, almost daily basis. Even this month of June, my wife was pointing out, this is our birth month. But this is a month that has been turned into something else by this world. Something that is perverse in the eyes of God. This morning as we turn to Romans chapter 3, I'm reminded that I'm a little bit like what we are learning in our Sunday school class. I'm a little Jeremiah-ish this morning. Because the message here is not an easy one for us to digest, even as believers at times. But most certainly, what is preached here is not going to be very savory to the unsaved person of the world around us. And this is where Jeremiah found himself, as we saw in our Sunday school class this morning, dark times and preaching a dark message. The message that I'm preaching this morning may at first be dark. But we know that there is a brightness at the end of it. It is the cross of Christ. And that's why I say it's so appropriate this morning, after coming through Romans chapter 3, we're going to end at the gospel. We're going to end at the foot of the cross. And those of us that have been rescued from what we're reading here in Romans chapter 3, join me there if you would, Romans chapter 3. 
And I'm going to be re begin reading in verse 9 down through verse 20. <clears throat> Romans 3, verse 9. Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. <clears throat> For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, in our first study of Romans 3, looking at the first eight verses for the past couple of weeks, Paul has covered, as we've studied, several hypothetical questions in a debate that would likely be raised in the Jewish community of his day as the gospel of God's grace was being preached. And I likened it to be something that we might witness in a courtroom scene where grace is on one side and on the other side man's merits. Or in the Jewish mind, the heritage, the lineage of the Jewish people and all of the promises in the scripture and the law that were given to them that they would regard themselves as God's chosen people. They were already in the kingdom. So the gospel of grace would have not made sense to them because they had labored, they had merited some measure of goodness before God that he would come and redeem them. As believers, we know that the only merits of Christ and his atoning sacrifice could ever satisfy the demands of God. It is only Christ that could accomplish this. And this is the gracious work of God in saving sinners that the Jews had not understood, nor had they accepted, because as Paul wrote, they had not been taught these gospel truths by the Holy Spirit, as Pastor Tyler read to us this morning. These are truths that the Spirit of God must awaken within the hearts and minds of unsaved people, including the unsaved Jew. But in their minds, the Jew believed that they had performed sufficiently in the law and the scriptures that God had entrusted into their care. We saw that in chapter 2. This was a work of their own versus the work of God's grace. So that both Jew and Gentile alike are to be understood as in a need for Savior. Paul does not end with that debate in verse 8. He enters into verse 9 down through verse 20 as we just read. And he shows this is why Jew and Gentile alike are under sin. He takes us to the very next step in this debate between grace and man's merits. And this is where we enter into an application that goes well beyond the Jewish community. This takes in all humanity, from the garden to the present. And as is true of every religion in the world today, apart from Christianity, and including Judaism, 
Religious men and women rest upon their own self-righteousness to merit the approval of God for their own acceptance. Thank you. For the blessing of the afterlife. And people today, as in Paul's day, cannot accept the truth about themselves that we find written here in Romans 3, nor do they really want to. Because it flies against the goodness that we instinctively want to see in ourselves. We can't be all bad, right? There has to be some goodness in us, some usefulness. So the words here by Paul don't resonate well with humankind. And instinctively, not with us as well, were it not for the intrusion of the Holy Spirit. I'd like to bring up on the board a statement by R.C. Sproul, who wrote this clear declaration about the text that we're going to look at this morning. He writes, People today profoundly disagree with the Apostle Paul's assessment of our condition, but we must not be caught up in what we as fallen people think of ourselves. What matters is God's assessment of our condition. Romans chapter 3 is God's assessment And further, there is the matter of our obligation to handle the word of truth and more specifically, to preach the gospel truth effectively. And this is where Sproul adds this comment as well. He says, we, and this references all unsaved people, including Christians prior to the cross, we are not ready to hear the gospel until we first understand the indictment against humanity that comes down to us from God himself. And what is that indictment based on? It is based on what Sproul said before was God's assessment. It doesn't matter what we think of ourselves. It only matters what God assesses is our spiritual condition. And his indictment against us takes us right back to chapter 1, verse 18, doesn't it? That God is revealing his wrath against humanity, against all unrighteousness, and the suppression of God's truth. Here that message of wrath culminates right here in Romans chapter 3. And in light of this passage, religion fails. Religion fails where only the gospel can bring eternal hope to our world. So I want to begin this morning with this one heading showing that we're all alike. This passage in Romans chapter 3 shows what we as human beings have in common with every other man and woman down through history going back to the garden. We begin with the universality of sin. The one thing all humanity shares in common is sinful depravity. And Paul draws from several Old Testament passages to assemble a very bleak inventory of qualities that mankind has possessed since the fall. And that's why it's important in verse 10 for us to see as it is written. This is masterful on Paul's part. Because he knows he's speaking to Jews as well as Gentiles. And the Jews are going to base their confidence, their their future assessment and salvation on the Old Testament scriptures. So where does Paul go? To the Old Testament scriptures and says, as it is written. In other words, Paul wasn't making this stuff up. This was not a new revelation that Jesus just handed to him. God had been proclaiming this at the very beginning all the way back in Old Testament scripture. And when Adam and Eve committed the act of treachery 
against God, their creator, it thrusts all their ancestors into a deeply depraved condition that has left all of us, men and women, in a contrary condition to the God who is holy. Paul captures this unlimited reach of sin in the very wording of verses 10 to 12 that we're going to look at this morning. And this is where I get the heading to this section. We're all alike. We're all in this. Notice the wording of Paul. There is none righteous. And notice the following emphasis. Not even one. There is none who understands. None seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. And again, there's not even one. Many of us prefer to cling to our individuality. We like to be unique in some way. We like to be recognized as being special, at least in some way or area. Yet when it comes to the awful qualities that we find here in Romans chapter 3, few of us are going to appreciate that this is what we all share in common. This is what we all are alike in. This is such a strong emphasis here on our commonality that it has caused some to think that perhaps this has to be an exaggeration. Paul is diving into some extreme hyperbole here because some appear to be good to us. Some who are so zealous for religion and devoted to God or a God or who come to church and see what religion is all about, it appears to us there has to be some seekers. Yet the language of Scripture leaves no doubt that man's self-assessment is not the same as God's assessment. Going back again to what Sproul had accurately written. After making a solid case in chapter 2, and the first part of chapter 3, that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the wrath of God, Paul asks, verse 9, the obvious question, what then? What then? Where are we going to go from here? Are we better than they? And the question is raised by script, or scholars here. What does Paul mean when he says, are we better than they? He's included himself in a company here. What does Paul mean by we? Well, some believe Paul was referring to his own Jewish heritage. And he's throwing himself in with other Jews. Are we as Jews Better than the Gentiles? And there is some merit to that interpretation because there in verse 9, he mentions the Jews and the Greeks, the Jews and the Gentiles, that they're all under sin. But this view seems to be a bit uncertain that as we look at the past eight verses, what has Paul been trying to say there? That the Jews are wrong. That they were not better than the Gentiles. So it seemed out of place that in verse 9 he'd say, are we likening himself to all the Jews better than they because he's been saying, no, we're not better than they. There are others that believe that Paul is saying, are we as Christians better than they? And to me, this makes a bit more sense because in the previous verse, verse 8, Paul said, we have been slanderously reported. Who is the we there? Himself, his missionary companions, Christianity, He's likening himself to the company of believers. Are we as Christians better than they? Now, I, I have to say that what is clear to me is that it isn't clear who Paul means when he says we. It could be likening himself as a Jew or a Christian. 
I favor the idea that he's, he's seeing himself as a believer. But the point that he's making is crystal clear, isn't it? We are all under sin. Jew, Gentile, Christian, non-Christian. We all came from that same humanity, total depravity. It is the Christian that has stepped into a new arena of hope. The only hope for mankind. So while we, in verse 9, may be somewhat uncertain to us, Paul's point is most certainly not uncertain. He answers in just that way by saying, Not at all, as I have been writing to you all, both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. That's the main point. We are all under sin. Nobody, including the Christian, had any advantage in that they started out better than the other. You and I are not saved today because we started out from better stock. God didn't have good material to work with. We're all under sin. And even the Jew couldn't say we were better than the other nations. You go back to Exodus chapter 7, and we read that God did not choose them because they were greater than the other nations. Do you remember why God chose them? It's because of the greatness of his love, remember? I chose you because I loved you. God set his love. That was their privilege. God set his love on them. It wasn't because God was starting out with good material. The point Paul makes here in Romans 3 is that everyone born into humanity is in the same damnable condition. And this is what we call total depravity. It brings Paul into the next question that all of us should be asking. What then? How bad are we? If we are all under sin, how bad is our sin? And this thrusts us into verses 10 through 12 this morning, and really 10 through 18, as we look at how bad sin is. Again, when God found us, set his love upon us, drew us to himself, it was not because any one of us were better than the other. We're all under sin. Well, how bad is sin then? And this gets into our message this morning where we're going to set up camp for the rest of this study. If you're curious to know just how bad it is to be all under sin, for all of us to be there, Verses 10 through 18 joins multiple Old Testament passages together so that we clearly understand every single human being shares this condition. And the Reformers called it total depravity. Meaning every part of our being, every part of our, the spiritual man is tainted by sin. You may not be as bad as the mass murder in prison. But we have all been sufficiently affected by sin that has touched every part of us. In other words, there's not a compartment of goodness over there where sin hasn't touched. There's not a compartment of righteousness over here where sin hasn't touched. Sin has affected every part of us. The problem that we all have is that we compare our badness or our goodness to others. That is instinctively our problem rather than to assess our badness by God's assessment. Assess ourselves as God would assess us. Because if people are to ask us about sin, we'd say, oh yeah, I sin sometimes, but I'm not a bad person. I've done bad things at times, but I've done a lot of good things. And from this many reason that God would not cast them into hell for occasionally slipping up. Would God be a good God to do that? 
He will certainly appreciate the good things that I do and kind of dismiss the the relatively minor bad things. Or maybe my good things outweigh my bad things. And of course, the very devout religious person will certainly conclude, as the Jews did, that the many good and righteous things that they do for God did outweigh the bad of the past. And the bad things that they covered, they, they just sacrificed animals, and that took care of that. Some people know that God is love, and therefore he loves everyone, and he's going to take us all to heaven. Or perhaps he's going to take the best of us to heaven and the very, very worst ones may get left behind. Which is why there are religious people writing books like Love Wins, which is not a gospel book. What Romans 3 teaches us is that we are all the most vile of sinners. And it's here that we learn what it means that all are under sin. And this is what we all share alike. So let's begin in verse 10. Paul says there are none righteous. And not a single one of us, there are righteous. And this is taken from Old Testament passages like Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. The standard of measure by which God evaluates our unrighteous condition is his own righteousness, which is in perfection. Sin has corrupted man's righteousness so that no sinner can be compared to God in his perfection. We sang of that this morning. His holiness. God is a good and gracious king. And he's perfect in that. So strong is this point to be understood that Paul was not content to leave that up to speculation on to the extent of its application. So he goes further and say, no, not even one. Is this coming across clearly to my audience, Paul is saying. There is not one of you that are righteous Mr. Jew, Mr. Pharisee, Mr. Scribe. No, not even one of you. Apart from the work of the gospel, if any of us were to stand before God on Judgment Day and throw out a defense before him that listed the splendid deeds that we have done, they would be evaluated not on our own merits, but on the perfect righteousness of God himself. And therefore, being part of a church isn't going to qualify us. Doing charity work giving to the poor, being a good citizen, teaching a Bible class, even being a pastor or a priest will not qualify you. God has written in his word that there are none righteous compared to him. No, not even one. And further, in verse 11, he says there are none that understands. Okay, we might accept that there are none righteous like God, But now Paul is entering territory that's going to be a bit offensive. None of us understand. You can imagine the Jew reeling back. Or the other devout religious person of our day. Or the false pastor or the false priest that is deeply zealous about his devotion to God or a God. What do you mean I don't understand God? Think of it from the Jew's perspective. Paul, you're saying we don't understand God. God, we have the Old Testament scriptures. In just a moment, we're going to look at a Pharisee that was a lawyer that Jesus confronted. In other words, he was an expert in the laws of Moses. He was an expert in the Old Testament scripture. If anybody knows and understands God, it had to be the Jew. And yet, here is an Old Testament declaration taken right out of Psalm 14, Verse 2, where we read that God looks down from heaven upon the sons of men 
to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. The understanding among the sons of men in this context refers to man's understanding of spiritual things connected with the knowledge of God in regard to how God may be approached, how sinful man can and should have a relationship with him. And we're going to consider what it means to seek after God next. But the charge against humanity here is that there's not one single person who understands, and it's not referring to understanding physical matters in the world. The lack of understanding here in fallen mankind refers to matters in the spiritual realm. And Paul expands this further as was read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That is a good reference for you to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where the wisdom of God is not known to the natural man. And as was prayed for us this morning, we all came from that natural man. We all once were that natural man. The incarnation of Christ, his death, his resurrection for the salvation of sinners. These are the deeper things of God. Or the things of the spirit of God. Men's do not seek after God because they do not understand God. And yet the religious man may say that they do know God. They study him. They worship him. They serve him. They lead others to know him. But Jesus taught that no one truly knows God apart from knowing the Son. I'd like you to turn to Matthew for just a moment. Matthew 22. Matthew Did I say Matthew 22? I mean Matthew 11. We're going to look at Matthew 22 in a moment. Matthew 11, verse 27. Jesus spoke these words. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. In other words, the only way we're going to know God is if his son reveals God to us. It's after this that Jesus invites men, if you'll look further on in that passage, he invites men and women, come to me that you might know God and you'll find rest for your souls. If you want to know God, you want to understand God, you must come to the son. And therefore Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, learn from me. For I am gentle, humble in heart, you're going to find rest for your souls. The only way anybody's going to know God is through the Son. And for those who are drawn by Christ to faith in his gospel, the sinner can enter into a living and an eternal relationship with the living God. Apart from faith in Christ, neither religion nor man's spiritual efforts can provide an understanding of the things of God. And this truth goes hand in hand with the claim that men are seeking God, going back to our passage in Romans 3. And this is again a quotation from Paul out of Psalm 14, verse 2. We don't understand God, and therefore nobody seeks after God. It's offensive enough that he would tell us that nobody understands God. But now, Paul, you're going to say nobody is looking for him? Without question, both of those who, are, both those who are unsaved as well, I think, as some within the Christian community are going to draw back from this because some within the Christian community think, well, there are people seeking God. So Paul must have something else in mind here. 
In fact, there's a recent movement within the past several decades that has designed their worship service for those in the community that they claim are seekers, seekers of God. Yet here in verse 11, Romans 3, taken right out of the Old Testament scripture, Psalm 14, it teaches there is no one seeking God. And as we've just seen, the only way to know God is through faith in his son. And it's according to what Jesus said, that it is by my will that I will reveal to you the Father. Jesus further taught, and I reference John chapter 6, verse 44 and verse 65, Jesus taught no one comes to him, Jesus the Savior, unless the Father who sent Jesus to our world draws him. God must draw the sinner to the Son. And he further said, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. So what the Word of God is telling us is that the only true seeker of God are those whom God has sought out for himself first. That is the only true seeker. And God is the one that draws that one to his Son. That one being drawn by the Father, and notice also by the will of Jesus Christ to know the Father, is the one that is seeking God. So Father and Son are united together in this drawing work, this revealing work. There are no seekers apart from those that God himself has sought out for salvation. People are confused in their understanding of Scripture to presume that all or at least some unconverted men and women are seekers of God or perhaps in some of them when the word says that none seek after him. And we say that, some say that I should say, because sinners may be seeking happiness or purpose in life. They may be seeking freedom from guilt, perhaps of past sins. They may be seeking love and acceptance in a world that is often filled with hatred and rejection. They may be even seeking what may be called the gifts that come from God, like peace and spiritual rest. That does not mean they're seeking God, though. And I bring up another comment by R.C. Sproul. There are three quotes that I want to share, all from R.C. Sproul this morning. And this is profound in stating what we are studying here this morning. We see people searching for the things that we know can be found only in Christ, but we make the gratuitous assumption that because they are seeking the benefits of God, they must therefore be seeking God. That is the very dilemma of fallen creatures. We want the things that God can give us, but we don't want him. We want peace, but we don't want the prince of peace. We want purpose, not the sovereign purposes decreed by God. We want meaning found in ourselves, but not in his rule over us. And the point that Sproul is making here is that we must not presume that because people are seeking something, that they're seeking God. Even when sinful man seeks the benefits that God can supply, it does not mean they're seeking the one true God or the things that God himself alone can supply. Men and women are not true seekers of God unless God has sought them out and is drawing them to his son. God is the, he is the one who makes the sinner to be a seeker. And if sinners are being made or drawn to be a true seeker of God, how should we then design our worship services? If the sinner is being made a seeker by God himself, we want to design our worship service 
after understanding God, right? Because that's what man was lacking. They have no understanding of God, therefore they don't seek him. So if God is drawing a sinner to his son, we want a worship service that is filled with the understanding of God, not after the understanding of our culture. That won't profit anybody. But what will profit the one that is being sought after by God himself is to fill our worship with a knowledge of God, an understanding of God. In Isaiah 53, in verse 6, it turns our attention to this next charge of Paul. All have turned aside. And this adds to the, the marks of treason that we've committed against God. Sinners have turned aside. They've taken another way than what God has demanded. And on the part of man, this was not a matter of simply getting lost or confused or we had good intentions. I just chose the wrong direction. It reminds me of the Bugs Bunny cartoon that I grew up watching. Bugs Bunny surfaces. And what does he say? I must have taken the wrong turn at Albuquerque. It makes it kind of an innocent and playful approach to where man is today. Oh, I just, I just choose wrong. But I'm innocent. I was looking. I had good intentions. But this is not at all what Paul means here when he said all have turned aside. And again, I reference Isaiah 53, verse 6. Describing the role of suffering Messiah and how he rescues his people. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Notice the word all. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Do we understand what that's saying? What that is saying, especially to the Jew that this was written to. The Jew was given the way of God. They had the law. They had the prophets. The prophecies of Messiah. And here God is speaking through Isaiah the prophet, saying, all of us have sheep gone astray. We were given the right way by God. We have chosen, we have turned to our own way. There's a deliberate act of rebellion or treason here. This is not an innocent person that got confused along the way and should have turned at Albuquerque. It is not that. The Lord, in fact, says the iniquity of all of us, is now placed on Messiah. In other words, the sin of choosing the wrong way will be placed on the shoulders of Christ when he hung on a cross. No, there was no innocence here. We deliberately chose our own way. And we look at the history of Israel out of the Old Testament Scripture. Well, the law was being given to this people. They were told, wait, as Moses went onto the mountain. And what did they do? They melted down some gold, made a calf image, and said, this then is your God. He's the one that delivered you from Egypt. And that was the pattern of Israel. God was given to them as the one true creator that they were to worship. And so often we find Israel in Old Testament turning to the foreign gods of the nations. In fact, as you read through the kings, how many times do we read about the high places? Mixed in with the worship of God. That's turning to our own way. Oh, we were given the right way. It was there before us. But we turned to our own way instead. And that sin, that iniquity, that wickedness was laid upon the shoulders of Christ. 
as he hung on the cross and bled and died for his people. In the eyes of God, there is only one way, not many ways to him, as our world often prefers to think. John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the light. No man comes to the Father except through me. And therefore, any other way that man chooses to take, whether by morality or religion, is taking man's own way and not God's. And it is an evil act against the will of God. And therefore, when men pursue religion that looks so moral and ethical, so worshipful, so zealous are they, bear in mind that is an evil act of treason against God himself. The way to God is faith in his Son. And then moving into verse 12 in Romans chapter 3, together they are useless. Useless. The last two qualities of treason against God are both to be highly debated among the unbelieving world. To be regarded as a useless person or a person who does no good, it's certainly going to be offensive to most unbelievers and they're going to reject the accusation. But once again, the word together supports the understanding that all of humanity is in this position together. All have turned aside, and in doing so, they all together have become useless. And the word useless in the Greek here has the idea of food that is spoiled. It is corrupted. It's unfit to eat. Now, we live in a world that loves to celebrate and reward the winner. We have a a prize called the Nobel Peace Prize. It's an example. And generally, the person who wins such a reward has invested heavily in the skill or achievement that they're being recognized for. And just within the past couple of years, I think it's been revealed that one of the Nobel Peace Prize winners of the past was later discovered as a fraud. So it isn't obviously a perfect system. But on a lesser scale, even the unsaved man or woman can do a kind and helpful act towards others. Or we might say, how many unsaved soldiers have sacrificed their lives for the freedoms we enjoy today? Are we going to say that they are useless? We would not call them useless, and it would be right that we would not do so. We shouldn't call them useless. But Paul is not talking about the moral good that men can do for each other. Paul is again describing what is useful to the Lord. That which has an eternal merit in the assessment or the eyes of God. Because every part of the being a man is corrupted in some measure by sin. Nothing accomplished by men is useful to the Lord. There's something, certainly nothing acceptable in man's usefulness or so-called usefulness that can contribute to his salvation. And this is in contrast to God's perfections which have no corruptions in them at all. So we're talking about that which is useful that is saturated with man's corruptions versus that which God sees as useful that is entirely without corruption. And this brings us, and I think goes in tandem with the last of the qualities that we're going to look at. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul emphasizes this again. There's none who does good, not even one of us. And again, this is a kind of offensive statement. None are useful. Nobody does anything good. 
Here again, we could say that on a strictly human level, unsaved people may do good to others. And we appreciate it when somebody, even an unsaved person, does something good that benefits us in some way. Certainly telling the truth is good. Showing kindness is good. Being helpful is good. But in the eyes of God, God is, good is not merely measured by the outward act. It involves the motives, the thoughts, the imaginations, the will. God not only sees the outward action, but remember the heart is visible to him. Even if the outward act appears good to us, the heart is never fully free of corruption of sin. And therefore, if God were to accept man's defiled goodness, he would not be holy. He would not be God. Evaluating the heart is something that we're not always good at. We tend to think probably better of our own motives than we should. And as believers, we have the Word of God, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us to help us understand the corruption of our own hearts. The unsaved world has neither the understanding of God's Word, the understanding of God, or His Spirit to correctly assess their motives, their will, to fully understand how deeply the heart has been corrupted by sin. And this is where I'd like to kind of bring a summary to what Paul has told us here in verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. The core issue for man's lack of goodness, as well as each of the others that Paul has named here, is a failure really to love God. Where God is not loved, he will not be honored in our actions or in our hearts. And this is where I'd like you to turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And if you look at verse 36, this is where the greatest commandment is being discussed. Jesus is responding to that Pharisee lawyer who knew the Old Testament scripture, and he wanted to test Jesus on his understanding of God's laws, having just witnessed Jesus correcting the Sadducees on marital laws. The greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love God. Notice how he puts this, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Again, an emphasis on that word all. We've been looking at that in Romans chapter 3. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as self. Jesus then adds, verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law of God and prophets. And I want you to notice that little three-letter word again that we've seen in Romans 3, all. If we cannot love perfectly, we cannot love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. There is no way that we can fully keep the law because all of the law hangs on this one. Love God with every part of your being. So the motivation of the heart to be good, to be righteous, to understand and seek God, to hold fast to God's way and live a life that is useful to Him all depend on what? Loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, 
and with all our mind. And the problem here is that mankind has not been able to do that since the fall. And even as a believer, I have to say, I have not lived up to that spiritual quality. I haven't lived up to all the things that Paul has named in, in Romans 3. Certainly not in a way that honors God. And this is because even I, as a Christian, have not loved God in this way for even five minutes. Have any of you here today loved God as a Christian with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind? Nobody's going to raise your hand at that. But this is what the cross has accomplished for the believer. I have been enabled by his spirit to do good, to be righteous, to know God and seek God. None of these by my own strength or holiness, but only as his spirit has empowered me. And yet the presence of sin is still a problem for me. I am not perfectly good. I'm not perfectly righteous. And I don't perfectly love God. But do you realize what the cross has done for you? It has cleansed you from that inability. No, I haven't loved God perfectly as a Christian, but Christ died to forgive that sin. And even more than that, according to 2 Corinthians 5, the righteousness of Christ himself has been imputed to me so that as God looks at me, he doesn't see that imperfection to love, the imperfection of goodness or righteousness. What he sees is the righteousness of his own son. This is the power of the cross, isn't it? I don't love God perfectly right now, but I'm forgiven of that. And when God looks at me now, he sees a perfect lover of Christ. That's not me. That's not my own ability. That's a gift of the sacrifice of the atonement of Christ. All this to say, when we look at Romans chapter 3, if we were to condense it all down into one declaration, it would be, I need Christ. I need the cross. That's where Paul is going with this. We are all under sin. None of us seek God. We don't understand him. We're not righteous. We're not useful to God. We need Christ. We need the Savior. And bringing our study to a close this morning, it is necessary that the gospel believer fully understands the essential nature of the truths that we're finding in Romans chapter 3 that have been rewritten from the Old Testament scripture. Paul was laying down the truths that are necessary as part of God's redemptive plan, his redemptive work, and essential for the church to know and believe. These things in Romans chapter 3, they may seem dark, but they are essential for us to understand as gospel believers. There are truths that are essential to the cross, they're essential to our walk of faith, and they're essential to our response to God. Those three things I want to emphasize now. Truths that are essential to the cross, They're essential to our walk of faith, and they're essential to how we respond to God. I'm about to put that in a different wording for you in this conclusion. The record of man's total depravity in Romans 3 gives to the church, first, truths essential to salvation. That's the cross. Truths essential to salvation. One of the main gospel doctrines that the epistle to the Romans teaches us is that we are saved by faith In God's grace, apart from what? Works. Romans 3 explains that. Apart from works. This is what separates the gospel from every religion on the world, including Judaism. 
unregenerate man has no righteousness, no goodness, no usefulness to God that he could in any way contribute to his own salvation. He does not even have the ability to understand God or seek God out and turn from his own wicked way that he might know the way of God. If God were to make salvation possible, he did everything through his son on the cross, he's risen from the dead, he's ascended to his throne, but if God were to wait on man to do the right thing to trust in that salvation, what would happen? Nobody would be saved. Nobody would be saved. Or if God were to allow man to make himself even slightly worthy, I'll accept some of the good things that you do so that you might receive the gift of forgiveness. None would be saved. Why? Because there's none that are righteous. None of us are good. None of us have anything useful for God. We are all spoiled and not fit for consumption. None would ever come to him. None would ever believe in him. Why? Because Romans chapter 3 declares this is what depravity looks like. There's not a single one of us that has done what is good in in reaching out to God by faith. That would be a good thing to do. We don't have the ability to even reach out to God by faith. God must come to us and seek us out, drawing us to his son. Jesus must open up the eye of the person to understand, the spiritual eye of the sinner to understand this is God. So he seeks us out. He draws us to his son. And therefore, we declare together, by grace, you have been saved. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. For any sinner to be saved, he or she must understand they have nothing to bring to God to offer in exchange for salvation. It's why we sing that old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to what? The cross I claim. We have nothing to offer God. We have nothing to bring And so sometimes when I hear people say, or Christians say, just come to God as you are, with the assumption that you can just be who you want to be with Christ. We come as we are, but prepare yourself to be transformed. If you're thinking any otherwise, you don't know the cross. Second, Romans chapter 3 is telling the church truths that are essential to sanctification. Sanctification. And this is our growth, our walk of faith, our likeness to Christ that is progressively taking place if we are a true believer. The truths of man's treason against God in Romans chapter 3, these are essential for us to know if we're going to grow in holiness and more likeness to Christ. These are the things in Romans chapter 3 we've been saved from. We thought we were good before, now we know better. We thought there was a little measure of righteousness. I thought I was going God's way. I thought I was seeking. Now we know better. And we know what to grow out of. We're not trusting in our own assessment any longer. We're not trusting in our own goodness. And apart from Christ, we don't know righteousness. We don't understand God. But having been given this description of the old man of sin, we know where God is taking us, do we not? We know where God is at work. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12 to 13, if we are working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, we need to know where God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Where is God's pleasure? It isn't in Romans chapter 3. That was man's pleasure. So for us to learn these things, again, they may at first seem dark, and it's troubling to know what we've come from, how essential it is for us to know this is where we need to go. And we don't need to be back there. 
Now as believers with spiritual understanding, we know the way and we know what to turn from. And this brings us to the, the sec, uh, third truth essential that I want to explain this morning. Romans chapter 3 gives us these doctrinal descriptions. These are truths essential to adoration. They're essential to adoration. And what I mean by that is our worship. If we're to worship God in truth and from within our spirits, it requires that we know truth about God, about ourselves, about why we needed the cross and what it's accomplished for us. These are truths that are essential then to our adoration of God and how we respond to Him in worship. And we've had that spiritual understanding. It's awakened within us by the Holy Spirit. We're going to respond to Him not in our own assessment of goodness, not on our own faulty righteousness, not on our own wicked understanding of God. Not at all. We're awakened by the Holy Spirit to know the things of Christ no longer as a natural man, as 1 Corinthians 2 explained. We're going to respond to him in worship for what his salvation has done, what his grace has accomplished, how his love has brought us to himself. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, Paul writes to the church, Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. He then goes further to show why we rejoice in verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, putting no confidence in the flesh. We know what the flesh is like. Romans 3. We're putting no confidence in that. And even the picture of circumcision was the cutting off and the throwing away of man's guttural desires, getting rid of of what man pleases. And we're going after what God pleases. We've learned from Romans 2, circumcision was symbolic of the cutting away and the, the removal of man's defilements. And how now having been circumcised of the heart, how do we respond? Paul says, we worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus because we put no confidence in the flesh. And I just want you to consider four passages very quickly that speak to us about a different mind of God and how we respond to Him. What has He done for me? And what has this caused me to do for Him? In Luke 15, 24, Jesus taught that we were once lost from God, but He came and He found us. We didn't find him. He came and found us. In Luke chapter 5, verse 31 to 32, we've been described as sick. Jesus said, I didn't come to heal those that were well. I came for the sick. And the reference there is those who are fatally sick. Sometimes Christians I've heard say, well, we're more than sick. We are dead. Well, here Jesus said, I came to heal the sick. This is a fatality sickness. This ends in death. Jesus came to our world as the great physician and he made me whole. He made me well. Ephesians 2, we were once dead to God in our sin. But what did he do for me? What did he do for you? He made us alive together with who? Christ. And we're seated with him. We have a position with the Son of God there in heaven. In Revelation chapter 3, Verses 17 to 21. Listen to this description. Once we were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He made us rich. He clothed our shame. He gave us sight. And again granted us to be seated with Christ who is enthroned 
with his Father and ours. This is what he has done for us. He took us out of Romans chapter 3. And with our faith in Christ, we're made alive. We're whole. We're made righteous. Covered with the righteousness of Christ. And this leads us right into our communion worship, does it not? This is what our God has done for us. We have not been left in Romans chapter 3. So let us respond in adoration and worship now as we take the bread and the cup together. Our Father in heaven, as we now gather to give memorial to your Son, to remember Him and His sacrifice, would you stir within our hearts the reality of what you've done in taking us from spiritual death, from fatal sickness, from being poor, wretched, miserable, blind and naked. And you're now doing a work making us more like our son. You're now doing a work where we've been transformed by your son. We've been saved, forgiven by your son. And his blood covers everything vile in us, past, present, and future. And when you look at the believer here that is going to take the bread and cup together, you see not our sin, even the present ones. You see the righteousness of your son. Father, give to us a heart right now that responds in worship and adoration. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand now with us.